You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1885th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 1st of July 2022. The editor of this edition is Mary Grenfell, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Adrian Grenfell and Sue Harrington-Spear. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. And we will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now to the headlines. Fundraising for sepsis survivor Pam hits 25,000. Youngsters are arrested after crackdown by town police. Man, 47, avoids jail for possessing more than 1,000 indecent images. And two years in jail for man of 27 after planned revenge attack. Fundraising to help a lawful mum in a million to recover from life-threatening sepsis is halfway to a £50,000 target and a family are hoping to boost the total further. Grandmother Pam Driscoll, 52, an assistant at Sainsbury's petrol station, Bury St Edmunds, was left fighting for her life after a suspected sinus infection resulted in pneumococcal septicemia with sepsis ravaging her body. After falling ill with flu-type symptoms on April the 10th, Pam was admitted to West Suffolk Hospital the following day and put into an induced coma, but, with blisters in her arms, hands and legs, was transferred to Bloomfield Hospital in Chelmsford on April the 29th for specialist skin care and extensive skin grafts. On May the 10th, both legs were amputated below the knee and she's since lost all her fingers on her left hand. Her daughter, Rosie of West Row, said her mum had been brave and strong throughout the horrific nightmare. Mum is as okay as can be. Everything is going in the right direction. She's had many skin grafts and a case of getting her skin under control and healing now, but it's all moving forward, said Rosie. She did have a bit of a down day this week, but that's to be expected, especially now they're trying to wean her off some of the pain relief, but she's still very positive. A number of arrests have been made by police investigating a group of children that is believed to have committed a range of offences against other youngsters in Haverhill, including assaults, robbery and harassment. And in a further blow to criminal activity in Haverhill, Police have also arrested three people in connection with a series of house burglaries in the town and further afield. The arrests came to light at Haverhill Town Council's meeting on Monday when PC Cheryl Claydon read an update on police operations in the town from the Haverhill and Sudbury locality, Inspector Matt Paisley. PC Claydon told councillors, We are heavily engaged with partner agencies in tackling a number of identified young people who have allegedly committed a range of offences, from public order to serious robberies against their own peer groups. 
She added that key individuals had been arrested and bail conditions and curfews issued while police officers worked with partner agencies in social care, education and housing to look for a longer-term solution. PC Clayden said, While we are yet to gather the evidence, we strongly believe that the recent spate of graffiti could be attributed to this group. We will continue to investigate these offences in order to prevent, deter and prosecute those responsible. We also arrested one of those responsible yesterday. A police spokesman has confirmed that three people, all aged between 10 and 14, had been arrested on suspicion of committing a range of offences in Haverhill, including assaults, robbery, possessions of an offensive weapon, harassment and public order offences. Another person had also been interviewed in connection with use disorder, she added. PC Clayton went on to say, We've also experienced a spate of dwelling burglaries that have not only affected Haverhill, but have spread across the locality, including Sudbury. Thanks to some positive witness accounts and CCTV, we have worked with other forces to identify a group from Lincolnshire who have been targeting the eastern region, committing house burglaries in multiple numbers on certain days. A man has avoided an immediate prison sentence after more than 1,300 indecent images of children were found in his home. Jonathan Aldous, 47, appeared at Suffolk Magistrates Court for the sentence, having previously pleaded guilty to three charges of making indecent images of children on May the 27th. Magistrates heard how police received information about an IP address that was linked to Aldous' Google account. Officers executed a warrant at his home on June the 29th, 2021, and various devices were seized, the court heard. Following analysis of a Samsung mobile phone, 325 indecent images of the most serious kind, Category A, were discovered, along with 53 videos of that grade. A further 315 indecent images graded at Category B were found, and 20 videos graded at that level, and 716 images and 4 videos which were classed as Category C. The court heard that Aldous, of Great Green Cockfield, had no previous convictions. In a police interview, Aldous told officers he had an addiction to porn and had sought counselling. He admitted to being involved with chat rooms, with a user named Trade Young and F12 to attract those online who had a sexual interest in children, the court heard. He accepted he had been solely responsible for the indecent images and that he obtained sexual gratification from them, magistrates heard. Larry Marks, representing Aldous, said her client had sought help through counselling and following his arrest and had lost his job as a result of his guilty plea. She said Aldous was ashamed for what he'd done and dedicated himself to doing a great deal of work to rehabilitate himself. Aldous was sentenced to six months imprisonment, suspended for two years with the Horizon Sex Offenders Programme and 160 hours of unpaid work. He's also handed a five-year Sexual Harm Prevention Order, SHPO, and must comply with registration requirements for seven years. A Suffolk man who attacked a father and dragged him out of his home during a planned revenge visit has been jailed. 
Kayemo Curtis, 27, went to a home in Beck Row on September the 26, 2020, to confront the victim's son, Ipswich Crown Court heard. Curtis had been angered after hearing no further action was being taken against the victim's son in relation to a matter with his sister, Liam Edwards, prosecuting, told the court. The father would not allow Curtis to see his son, and a verbal exchange followed the court, the court heard. Curtis then punched the victim in his own home before the father was able to return a punch in self-defence, Mr Edwards said. He then dragged the father from his home in front of family members and struck multiple blows to his head and also kicked him. Mobile phone footage was played to the court in which the victim could be heard saying to Curtis, please, I don't want any more. But Curtis replied by swearing at the victim, who was lying on the floor, before throwing two further punches. The victim sustained swelling to his head and fractured ribs in the attack, Mr Edwards told the court. In a victim impact statement read to the court by Mr Edwards, the victim said the assault had impacted his mental health and resulted in the family moving house. Curtis of Aspel Way, Beck Row, near Bury St Edmunds, pleaded guilty to causing actual bodily harm in March 2021. The court heard he has 11 previous convictions for 15 offences, including battery and actual bodily harm. Lynn Shirley, mitigating, said Curtis was not taking his medication at the time of the incident and had been suffering with his mental health. She added he had consumed alcohol and drugs prior to the attack. Sentencing him on Wednesday, Judge Emma Peters told Curtis she viewed the attack as a planned revenge visit, which was prolonged and persistent. She said Curtis's criminal record for a man of his age was troubling, adding, you should be reaching a stage of having some maturity about you. Judge Peters jailed Curtis for two years and he will have to serve half in custody before re his release on licence. And now for some general news. A popular BBC One programme is set to be filmed in a Suffolk church next month. Songs of Praise which was first aired in 1961, will be filmed at the Holy Trinity Church in Long Melford on Tuesday, July the 19th. Filming will take place between 6.30pm and 9.30pm and the producers are looking for local, enthusiastic people to join the congregation for an evening of hymns. It is not the first time Suffolk will feature on the long-running Sunday show. A group of Ipswich schoolchildren appeared in Songs of Praise back in 2019. Entry is free and people are being encouraged to get involved with the filming. To apply to take part in the show, people should send their name, the number of people hoping to be at the church, to sopcongregations at avantimedia, A-V-A-N-T-I-M-E-D-I-A dot TV or call O. Double seven three four zero three zero eight eight eight. The royal couple delight crowds during visit to Newmarket Racecourse. The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge delighted crowds when they took part in a football game when they visited Newmarket Racecourse recently. To cheers and applause from onlookers, William and Kate both took part in the football game where they both attempted to kick the ball at a target. Kate told the court it would be difficult <clears throat> as she was wearing wedges. After taking a shot, the Duchess shook the hand of a boy who'd been playing before her and said, You did better than I did. 
the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge were in Newmarket to mark Cambridge's first ever county day. The event, organised by the county's Lord Lieutenant, Julie Spence, was founded to showcase the very best of the county and to raise money for charity. Although Newmarket Town is in Suffolk, the July course at Newmarket Racecourse falls within the Cambridgeshire boundary. Earlier in the day, the royal couple visited the Milton branch of East Anglia's Children's Hospices, EACH, which was opened by Diana, Prince of Wales, in 1989, and the Fitzwilliam Museum, Cambridge. At the hospice, the Duchess of Cambridge lent a hand to youngsters with artwork, telling one girl, don't be shy, as the eight-year-old painted her hand. The couple were greeted by cheers and a round of applause by school children from the region who waved flags upon their arrival during Children's Hospice Week. The Duchess was presented with a bouquet of flowers by 15-year-old Chloe Bowes, who was a neurological condition called bilateral perisylivian polymicrogia. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Kate, who's been patron of each for ten years, donned a floral face mask as she entered the hospice. The Duke and Duchess also visited Cambridge's Fitzwilliam Museum to see the first official portrait of themselves. The painting, commissioned last year as a gift for the people of Cambridgeshire, shows the pair standing side by side with Kate in an elegant emerald dress and William in a black suit. It is to go on public display in the University City. MPs have reinstated their support for a bid to establish an active railway line between Cambridge and Haverhill. West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock and two Cambridgeshire MPs, Anthony Brown and Lucy Fraser, co-signed letters asking the combined authority to fund a feasibility study into a railway line to link the destinations. The initial bid to reconnect Haverhill to the National Rail Network was made in 2021, but funding was not granted due to limited availability. Mayor of Haverhill, Bruce Davidson, said, I would love for the railway line between Haverhill and Cambridge to be reinstated, especially as most of the original track bed still exists. With a population of some 30,000 and rapidly <coughs> increasing, Haverhill is one of the largest towns in the country without a rail link. And here we have some more royal news. The Queen acknowledges students' efforts. Pupils were very excited to receive a letter from Windsor Castle in which the Queen passed on her thanks for their good wishes during her Platinum Jubilee year. The Queen thanked Southley School in Bury for the letter and colourful cards on the occasion of her Jubilee. Written by Her Majesty's Lady-in-Waiting, the letter, dated June the 11th, said, The Queen was glad to hear from you and although unable to reply to you personally, Her Majesty was interested to hear of the party you have planned to celebrate the occasion, and hopes that you will all have an enjoyable time. The school said the children were very excited to receive an acknowledgement for their efforts. We wanted to thank Her Majesty for her 70 years as our Queen, the school said. The younger pupils wrote letters and sketched portraits of the Queen as part of their topic work on the Jubilee. Suspended Sentence a Suffolk teenager who was caught messaging a decoy child in an underground police sting has been given a suspended sentence. At Ipswich Crown Court on Monday, 19-year-old Ryan Bradley of Raidwald Drive, Bury St Edmunds, admitted attempting to incite a child to engage in sexual activity 
attempting to cause a child to watch a sexual act and a total of six further offences relating to making indecent images of children and possessing extreme pornographic images. He was given a five-month period of detention in a young offender's institution suspended for two years. He was also ordered to 120 hours of unpaid work and was given a 40-day rehabilitation activity requirement and a programme requirement to address his offending behaviour. He was also made subject of a sexual harm prevention order and was ordered to sign the sex registers offenders list for five years. Sentencing him, recorder Jeremy Benson warned him that if he re-offended, he was likely to receive a custodial sentence. Juliet Donovan, for Bradley, said her client had no previous convictions. A young printmaker said she was blown away to learn one of her pieces was to feature in the Royal Academy of Art Summer Exhibition in London this year. A former student at King Edward VI School in Bury St Edmunds, Emma Bidwell, 20, said she was amazed a print of her late grandmother had been chosen for what would be her biggest exhibition by far. Miss Bidwell from Lackford near Bury used the screen printing technique to create the artwork, showing her grandmother, Phyllis Bidwell from Thetford, who died in 2019, aged in her early 90s. The Royal Academy's exhibition this year will run from June the 21st to August the 21st and around 15,000 entries were submitted by artists around the country. Town celebrates Armed Forces Day. A terrific atmosphere was created in Haverhill on Saturday by the town's celebration of Armed Forces Day. The town came together to pay its respects for the work done by Armed Forces in a number of ways. A convoy of military vehicles joined by police and fire service cars and appliances plus a number of scooters made its way around the town. The Phoenix, Pipes and Drums led a parade accompanied by numerous standard bearers and military veterans and cadets down the high street to Market Square where the convoy of vehicles gathered while the Victory Rolls Trio sang songs from the 1930s and 40s. Haverhill's Mayor, Councillor Bruce Davidson, said, Saturday to me was just awesome, on a par with a Platinum Jubilee Beacon Lighting Ceremony. I was in seventh heaven, with a proper Scottish pipe band in town. After waving off the convoy, I was really fortunate to march with a pipe band and the colours down the high street and into the market square. To my mind, Phoenix Pipes and Drums, which come from Watton, were a real crowd puller. In addition, Victory Rolls also were really good. They had me up singing and dancing with the men, so what is not to like? Councillor Tony Brown, who is a former Royal Engineer, said, It was a great fun day. From my perspective, everything worked like clockwork and was a credit to all those involved. The feedback that I got throughout the day was 100% positive and there was a terrific atmosphere around the town. Cheers! Beer and Cider Festival pools in a crowd at the Cathedral. The 30th East Anglian Beer and Cider Festival finished on Sunday after several days of thirsts being quenched in the warm weather. 
This was the second year the festival took place at St Edmundsbury Cathedral in Bury St Edmunds and visitors, just under 5,500 of them, enjoyed 300 real ales, 40 ciders and gin, as well as Beatles and Queen tribute bands and a variety of food options from curry to pies. Roughly 200 volunteers from 15 local groups and charities gave up their time to help out at the festival. Although the money raised has not yet been totaled up, it is expected to be a similar figure to last year's festival, which raised £30,000. The money will be split between the various charities depending on how many hours their volunteers worked, the two one main ones being are the Women's Royal Auxiliary Corps and St Nicholas Hospice Care. Martin Bate, festival organiser, said, The feedback that I've had from customers has been positive and the weather was kind to us. It was unprecedentedly hot. One cask of beer in the cathedral popped its cork on Friday. The rain on Saturday night actually added to the occasion when the Queen tribute band were on. They started playing and within 15 minutes the heavens opened and people took the umbrellas off the tables and started dancing. We had a lot more quirky things going on this year. For instance, we had a recital in the cathedral, which I think was pre-booked, with a grand piano and a cellist in the middle of a beer festival, which was quite sublime. It just shows the complete diversity of what we're doing. It all came together beautifully. The cathedral, as always, have been fantastic, and they have confirmed the dates for next year. Martin spoke of his pride at another successful festival and thanked his wife, daughter and her partner who volunteered their time as well as their general public who flocked in their droves. Thank you to all those who came along, he said. If this was your first time, I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll come back. If it wasn't your first time, thank you for your continued support. We can't do it without you and I'm so pleased to see how many people came. Later in the summer, there will be a volunteer celebration event where festival organisers will offer their thanks to all those who helped out. Primary school launches £50,000 Fix Our Pool campaign. A school is desperately trying to raise a huge £50,000 to refurbish its swimming pool that has been leaking vast amounts of water. The outdoor pool at Ruffham Church of England Primary School, near Bury St Edmunds, is used for children's swimming lessons and is also enjoyed by the community. It is out of operation this year as extensive work is required. It was installed about 50 years ago, sponsored by a local family, who wanted to ensure that children could learn to swim, said office manager Emma Thurlow. She said... The pool had been used ever since, apart from 2020, due to the coronavirus pandemic, but last year it came to light it was leaking huge amounts of water. There is an overall fundraising target of 50,000, with more than 5,000 raised so far, thanks to events organised by the school's PTA, including a Father's Day breakfast and other donations. Head teacher. Claire Clark said, It's a huge amount to raise. We're absolutely determined to do it and all the parents are behind it. It is such a fantastic asset for our school and the local community as well. It's not just from an educational point of view with the importance of learning to swim. It's a place the community can come together and families can spend time together. She added, So many primary schools have lost their pools 
and he managed to keep ours going purely with support from the parents and local community. We're really hoping they can come together for us this time as well. Carnival Comeback Delight as community shows its colours. A popular village carnival has made a joyous return after three years away due to the pandemic. Thousands of people gathered at the recreation ground for Burwell's carnival this year and were treated to a float parade, food, live bands, a skating competition, street dances, a judo display, inflatables, traditional funfair rides and more. The free-to-enter carnival saw groups such as the Brownies, Guides and Rainbows being joined by Burwell FC, Wild Burwell and Burwell Action for Youth, among others with members dressing up for the occasion. We were a bit apprehensive after being away for a while, but it was a real success with well over 3,000 visitors and perhaps even closer to 4,000, said co-organiser Pete Lancaster. Our float parade, which was on foot instead of with vehicles, was a new addition and that went really well and, of course, is more environmentally friendly. All our performers put on a great show which helped create a really nice carnival atmosphere and our burns were excellent too. Pub shines light on homeless. A night under the stars on cardboard sheets beckons for a team of pub staff who aim to highlight the plight of homeless people in Suffolk. Months after paying a key role in the donations drive for the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, the Cock Horse Inn in Lavenham says it has been inspired to raise awareness of people in need in the UK. The team is supporting the big sleep out from Saturday, July the 16th, to Sunday, July the 17th, by spending the night in the pub garden in Church Street with only cardboard, sleeping bags and tents. Landlady Amanda Paul, who runs the business with her husband Chris, said that being part of this process had got them thinking about the struggles that many people faced closer to home. She said they hoped to have a sleet out in such a prominent place in the village would shine the spotlight on the experience that more than 270,000 homeless people faced every night. When we did our bit for the Ukraine appeal, we didn't want to forget that there are those people in this country that need our help, she said. As with the Ukraine appeal, the Cock Horse Inn is a welcoming contribution of essentials that can help people on the street be as warm and safe as possible. An online fundraising page has also been set up in support of the shelter charity, which also provides housing assistance and advice to people at risk of homelessness. Amanda added, Even here in Lavenham, there is a need for this kind of support and generally... People think of Lavenham as being a very affluent village. When we were collecting for Ukraine, we had a couple of people asking us and approaching us privately and ask if we could spare some sleeping bags. I live in Berries and Edmonds, and sometimes you see somebody sleeping in the entrance of Poundland or Boots. And as much as some people might give them a change or buy them a cup of coffee, they really need more help. A hair salon in Newmarket has raised a significant sum of money for charity while winning the Business Improvement District's Best Window Competition, with a little help from a dog. Talking Heads, which is situated on Crown Walk, 
displayed a paper mache corgi that should be papier mache corgi in its window back in May to mark the Queen's Jubilee and hosted a guess the name of the dog competition with tickets costing two pounds each. Having sold all but the thirty two of the tickets, salon owner Fiona Glennon raised £672 for the food bank at Newmarket Racing Centre before deciding to top the sun up to £1,000 herself. I was delighted to be able to raise that amount for a great local cause and although I didn't quite sell all the tickets, I thought it would be nice to bump it up to a nice round £1,000, said Fiona. I was really surprised and happy when the BID contacted me to say I'd won their window display competition too. Most importantly, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who took part and well done to your, our winner of £50 who guessed the name Fred as it was her grandson's name. MP gets in gear to show support for charity challenge. Haverhill MP Mac Hancock stepped up to the mark last week to help a running challenge that is raising money for research into a cure for motor neuron disease. Mr Hancock arrived at Haverhill Rugby Club on Friday afternoon to complete a one mile run as part of the 1,000 miles in 1,000 hours challenge that's been going on at the club since May 28. The event is being held in memory of Haverhill man Neil Musto who died aged 52 of motor neuron disease on April the 1st. The challenge tasks at least one person to run or walk one mile or more every hour for 1,000 consecutive hours from a start and finish point at the rugby club in School Lane. All monies raised are going to support a research project being undertaken by King's College Hospital in London to help find a cure for motor neurone disease. Neil, who is a popular coach and member of Haverhill Running Club, HRC, had taken part in the trials for a cure conducted in the hospital. The West Suffolk MP, a keen runner himself, said, I first met Neil when he was running the Thurlow 10km run a decade ago. I think his family and friends are doing an amazing thing in fundraising for research and it's very inspiring. And now for some letters. And we start with one from Mr B. Walker, at least I assume he's Mr B. It could be just B. Walker from Woodbridge. And he says, Brexit's ongoing problems. Sir, there continues to be letters and articles published in the East Anglian Daily Times pointing out the economic and political drawbacks of Brexit. Mr Heath, letters June the 21st. This is because there are so many ongoing problems created by Brexit not least the very serious problem of the Northern Ireland Protocol. The NIP, part of Boris Johnson's oven-ready deal, was negotiated by the government and pronounced world-beating. The very same government is now prepared to break international law to unilaterally change the deal, an admission by the Brexit government itself that Brexit is a failure. Letters from former Remainers, now rejoiners, as far as I have seen, deal with serious matters such as statistics on the depleted economy, the loss of businesses, the increase in red tape, the loss of rights and freedoms, the risk to peace in Northern Ireland and the potential breakup of the Union. All consequences of Brexit. 
These letters are informative. They do not direct insults at people with opposing views. Brexit benefits are very hard to find. Even the recently appointed Minister for Brexit Opportunities could not come up with any ideas and had to ask the public for health. This resulted in the publishing a list of just nine suggested Brexit benefits, ranging from the totally trivial, like allowing vacuum cleaners to the downright dangerous such as reducing requirements to conduct fixed wire testing. Had these supposed benefits been written on the side of the Brexit bus instead of a lie about £350,000 a week going in funding to the NHS, we would have had more realistic pictures of the so-called sunny uplands. Marmalade sandwiches. Write Peter and Georgina Bacon of Woodbridge. Reading the recent reports of the marmalade sandwiches favoured by the Queen and Paddington Bear reminds me of our experience of a similar delicacy in the early 1960s. I'd recently been reunited with my wife after an 18-month commission in the Far East aboard HMS Belfast, and we were enjoying some rough camping in the Scottish Highlands, living and sleeping in my 1950s MG Magnet, cooking on a single gas ring, and bathing in the ice-cold runoff water from Ben Nevis. Ah, the joys of young love. However, one Sunday evening we decided to go posh and have a proper sit-down meal in a restaurant. We tidied ourselves up and drove into Fort William looking for somewhere decent to eat and have a drink. In our ignorance, we were completely unaware of the laws in Scotland at that time regarding Sunday drinking and the requirement to be bona fide travellers, having to identify and provide proof that we travelled more than three miles by signing a register declaring name, point and time of departure and destination before being allowed to order a drink. Well, we got over that hurdle and ordered our drinks and inquired about food, only to be told that no food was available until breakfast next morning and the bar was about to close as it was 6pm in the evening. So we searched the town, advertising fish and chips and as much bread, butter and marmalade as you could eat. Just the job. So in we went found a table and ordered the fish and chips duly arrived, accompanied by a pile of bread and two dishes, one with butter and the other marmalade. Then after our meal and paying the bill, we walked into the street, passing the service hatch, which had a big transparent glass jars each side, in full view of the deaners, one with butter and the other with marmalade. However, each of the jars had a good portion of each other's contents, with the unused portions having been scraped out of the dishes from each table. So, Your Majesty and Paddington, please check your handbag and hat to see if you have any mixed-up scrapings lurking in the corners, as it's never so nice the second time around, <laughs> particularly if you can see where it's coming from. <laughs> How nice to have a cheerful letter though he obviously didn't think it was very cheerful. Now, Alan Noble from Albra writes about the needs for survival. Sir, Professor Brian Cox is the latest eminent scientist to be a harbinger of doom by predicting that humanity will end by either a world war or global warning. Whilst the first might be avoidable, the latter seems to be inevitable, as there seems to be no political will to stop it. We are told that all of the rivers in East Anglia are now polluted, 
We have the lowest biodiversity count in Europe and the influential Office for Environmental Protection tells us that our flora and fauna is decreasing rapidly. As if living on another planet, our government continues to build a high-speed railway causing maximum degradation to our environment and supports the building of a power station in an area of outstanding natural beauty, with feared detrimental effects on an internationally revered nature reserve. It is strange that politicians were happy when it was stated that pylons would not be erected in an area of outstanding natural beauty in Essex, but seem quite happy to see another area, in my view, destroyed. All is being done in the name of jobs, investment and the economy. We have one party controlled by enterprise and the other by trade unions. It also does not make sense investing all this public money in environmental destruction when our hospital ceilings are being kept up by props. I am afraid that what we need to survive is politicians with totally different views. Ian Smith of Bury St Edmunds. It's time for fuel duty to be reduced. Does the government blame the retailer for not passing on the fuel duty reduction? Come across as a blatant attempt to avoid the focus of greed on itself. I support the demand that the government starts to show some compassion for the people of this nation and reduce fuel duty by about 10%, 10 pence per litre to bring it in line with 35 leading nations. As a reminder, here is the breakdown of fuel costs. Fuel wholesale cost is 52%. Government tax is 45%. Retail profit is a mere 2% and delivery costs at 1%. Colin Rossini from Dovercourt writes, Right, left and wrongs. Sir, when will the fevered biased media learn that it is not about right-wing versus left-wing, however much they wish it is? If it was right for public service workers to be praised for carrying the nation through a pandemic, how can it be wrong not to reward them with a wage increase now? The irony is that it will end up being Brexit that will break the union of this kingdom, with England hung out to dry as limp as the flag, weighed down by appalling and self-interested government. So much for levelling up, writes Stephen C.J. Parkinson from Easton. With inflation predicted to hit 11% soon, and with the Treasury calling for public sector pay discipline and collective society-wide responsibility, I find it shocking the government is planning to remove restrictions on bankers and other bosses' pay and bonuses to show the benefits of Brexit. Clearly, pay restraint is just for the serfs and plebs. Such crass action will pour petrol onto the flames of industrial action breaking out because ordinary working people are struggling to pay their bills having to cut back on their lifestyles and in shockingly large numbers people are struggling to pay for food and other life basics. So much for the Conservatives levelling up agenda. So dear Boris has to keep the stock of wealthy Tory donors topped up just in case Carrie wants a gold B-Day to match her £850 a roll wallpaper. With this clowns in charge we could sadly soon end up with a general strike and widespread civil unrest in this disunited kingdom. 
And in a similar vein, we have shop workers deserve pay rise. Paddy Lillis, from the General Secretary of Asdor, writes, Asdor's recent cost of living survey of over 5,500 lays bare the struggle low-paid workers are experiencing just to make ends meet. The vast majority of respondents are key workers delivering essential services in food supply industries. Unsurprisingly, the impact of rising costs and stagnating wages is seriously impacting mental health. Many respondents talked of how increased fuel prices were leading them to cut down on shifts, to ask for a transfer to a store close to home, or even to consider leaving work altogether. Worryingly, cutting down on food and skipping meals was also a common theme, as well as taking steps to reduce non-work-related travel to save on fuel costs, such as visiting family or pursuing leisure activities. These are the very real experiences of essential workers who were clapped during the pandemic and now seem to be forgotten. The government has offered only sticking plasters that go nowhere near covering rising prices and bills, so there needs to be significant increases in minimum wage rates and fundamental reforms to end insecure work. Asdor is calling for a new deal for workers, with minimum wage rates of at least £12 per hour as a step towards £15 for all workers. The pandemic clearly demonstrated just how reliant the country is on the lowest paid workers. So if we are to truly build back better, surely these essential workers deserve the dignity of decent pay. Sudbury Town Centre, writes Virginia Budd from Boxford. The town of Sudbury is a busy market town with a population of approximately 13,000. It no longer possesses either a post office, the nearest one being at Long Melford, or a bookshop. W.H. Smith, the only bookshop in town, having recently closed its book department. What on earth is going on? I know times are bad, but really. And now a slightly different topic. Car park sign outstayed its welcome. David Yates from Fornham St. Martin writes, There's been much frustration by drivers using Fornham Road to go into and out of Bury, particularly at the peak times of the day, with the higher volumes, exacerbated by the removal of the middle lane, allowing vehicles to turn right up Station Hill, not to mention, of course, all the restrictions due to broadband cable installations. At least these will provide long-term benefits. Also, cars are exiting the Tesco car park, turning right across the holding up and holding up through traffic. The left turn only sign at the exit was in place for a long time, in fact since the car park was built as part of the extension some 16 years ago. It was removed about six months ago, resulting in many cars taking advantage of the removal of this supposed restriction, now turning right across the through traffic, again causing irritation to some. I questioned this with West Suffolk Council to ask if this was permitted under the original planning permission and if so, should the sign be replaced. I have now at last received a clear and unequivocal response from West Suffolk Planning Environment in conjunction with Suffolk County Council Highways saying the original sign was in fact a planning condition applicable to construction traffic only. Also, that there's no record of adverse traffic risk requiring a sign on the highway with only one accident in the last five years. The original sign, therefore, outstayed its necessity. Your readers might find this helpful, or even, dare I say, a little amusing. 
Positive Vision for Sudbury, writes Polly Roger Brown on behalf of the Bellevue Action Group leadership team in Sudbury. Finally, some positive news for our town Sudbury. I and other members of the Bellevue Action Group leadership team, who've been campaigning for over three years to keep Sudbury's only park, a wholly public open space, visited the What's Next for Sudbury event held at the Town Hall by Bayburg District Council. We were pleasantly surprised to find an upbeat team from Bayburg who seemed genuinely excited about the prospect of redeveloping Boreham Gate, the bus station area. The concept plans are ambitious and attractive and in general terms, at this early stage, we as the leadership team of a local community group, we cannot speak for every one of our 700 plus members, would support them and have written to Bayburg District Council to say so. We wholeheartedly hope that Bayburg is able to secure its bid for government levelling up funds so the scheme can go ahead. Clearly, there is a caveat. The vital missing piece of this regeneration project is opening up Bellevue at the centre of Bellevue Junction to face St Peter's, Market Hill, and if it happens, the new hotel in Boreham Imagine if you and your family visit the shiny new Sudbury and are able to see a lovely green space with extensive play equipment across the road from your hotel room. It makes so much sense. Now is the time for Bayburg to extend its vision for Sudbury and incorporate our ideas with theirs. A new hotel for Sudbury? Yes. A cinema? Yes. More available housing? Yes. And a bigger, better park? which everybody can see as they drive in Sudbury. Yes, yes, and yes. Mm, splendid. Now, Graham Day from Stowmarket writes about the Jubilee events which brought delight. He says, I am firstly writing to congratulate the Berry Free Press on the excellent coverage given on June the 10th to the local events held to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. It seems as though many towns and villages took the time and trouble to arrange different events to celebrate this once-in-a-lifetime occasion, which may never be seen again. On the Friday, we decided to go to a community celebration held in Barking Tye near Needham Market. There was a wide selection of stalls, including games to visit and food attempts, uh, outlets attempts one's taste buds, and added into the equation was the opportunity to get up close to a pair of the iconic Suffolk punches and also a very different and entertaining dog show which was more than a match for others I've seen. A sizeable area was given over to a display of classic cars. There, shimmering supremely in the sunlight, was a large number of cars ranging from American cars to a Matra, a Porsche and even a Skoda, all lovingly cared for and maintained and a credit to their owners. One picture in the newspaper coverage particularly brought back memories. The picture of the painted Union Jack at Thorpe Moreau reminded me of the times over many years when my friend John reacted as polling station staff for any elections which were held. When we first went to the village hall, it had been restored and refurbished by the community, and what an asset it was. On one summer's day, there came into the hall a middle-aged couple and an older man who turned out to be a former American flyer. He had been based nearby in the Second World War and had visited the village hall for dances. He was pleased that it was still in good condition and being used. 
Looking back, I wonder whether he was stationed at Lavenham and would have perhaps known John T. Appleby of Suffolk Summer Fane. I will never know. Thank you to the organisers of the Barking event for a superb time and to the Free Press for reminding me of an event which happened at Thorpe Maru a few years ago. Now I'm going to read a feature. Did you know people used to think Felix Stowe's Landguard Fort was in Essex? What was life like for the 17th century soldier at Landguard Fort? The historic building in Felixstowe played an important part during the 1667 Dutch invasion. Find out how British soldiers kept them at bay. Centuries-old Langard Fort at Felixstowe kept Britain's shores safe for hundreds of years. While there have been a number of fortifications on Langard Peninsula since the reign of King Henry VIII, the current fort, you can see, was built in 1744 and has been modified in subsequent years. Over the years it has played a significant role in protecting Britain during various wars and battles, including World War I, World War II and the Cold War. Disarmed in 1956, the fort is now a Grade I listed and open to visitors. A number of rooms within the fort are filled with fascinating artefacts galore. But did you know there are also a number of volunteers who dress in period costume, reenacting what life was like at Langard Fort back during various conflicts? One of these reenactors is Roger Brooks, who volunteers at the fort on weekends and teaches guests about the Dutch invasion of 1667. A lifelong lover of history, Roger has long been keen to share his expertise with others and spent years doing living history displays. Over the years I developed an interest in the late 17th century and early 18th century, especially in relation to fort and coast. This was particularly inspired by Doreen Rayner and members of the History and Museum Society. In 1986 we held the very first Darrell's Day at the fort. I think this was the first time the public were allowed into the fort. Ben has two adjoining rooms that have been set up with 17th century artefacts and where he says visitors are welcome to go in and learn about the Dutch invasion and what life was like in the fort at that time. I usually have muskets there and do firing demonstrations occasionally. The talk depends very much on my reading and the visitors interest but primarily I aim to educate and amuse he says. And now we have a feature written by Ryan Dorning about the uh, Sparrowhawk. Fast, agile and extremely focused, the once endangered and often misunderstood Sparrowhawk can be seen in urban and rural environments alike. If you're a keen watcher of life in your back garden, the chances are you've had an encounter with a Sparrowhawk. It is commonly seen raptor, a skilled hunter, well adapted to urban environments and often uses a man-made structure as an observation point to launch a hunt. They're super fast and agile, with a high hunting drive which sometimes results in them crashing into windows or even walls. Transfixed on their prey, they can lose all awareness of their surroundings. It's easy to spot a sparrowhawk, or Eurasian sparrowhawk, in flight. Their flight pattern tends to be a burst of three to four wing beats followed by a rapid glide. 
I just remember the term, flutter, flutter, glide. Sparrowhawks are sometimes confused with peregrine falcons, but the peregrine has narrow arsed wings while the sparrowhawk has broader wings and the primary feathers look rather like fingers on a hand. They're about 11 to 15 inches or 28 to 38 centimetres in length with a wingspan of 21 to 27 inches or 55 to 70 centimetres. You can easily tell the male and female apart. The female is much larger, which allows it to take prey such as pigeons, whereas the male is more likely to take starlings and blackbirds. Male sparrowhawks are known as muskets, derived from the French musket, which in turn gave us the name of the famous gun, a very appropriate and explosive name for such a dynamic bird. The male is stunningly beautiful with very bright orange-pink markings and a vivid slate-grey back. The female is similar, but the colours are less um, saturated. Young sparrowhawks are brown and male chicks are slightly smaller than female. You can age a sparrowhawk by its eye colour. Young birds have greenish pale yellow eyes, while older birds develop a deep yellow coloration, which will even turn red in a very old bird. The RSPB now lists the sparrowhawk as amber, and they weren't always so commonly seen. Like all birds of prey, they were persecuted in the 1800s, but recovered during World War II, when hunting was dramatically reduced. Sadly, numbers plummeted again in the 1950s due to the use of DDT as an insecticide in agriculture. It was at this time that peregrine falcon numbers famously dropped almost to extinction, while the sparrowhawk all but disappeared from the east of England. The chemicals ingested by the birds resulted in thinning of eggshells and a catastrophic reduction in breeding success. DDT was banned in Great Britain in 1986 and worldwide by 2001. Since then, sparrowhawks have slowly recovered. I often hear people referring to sparrowhawks as horrible or cruel birds because they kill small songbirds. I've also heard them blamed for the decline in songbird populations. But during the ravages of DDT poisoning, the rarity of sparrowhawks was scientifically proved to have had no bearings on numbers of songbirds. Sparrowhawks prey on songbirds to feed themselves and their young. When you see one hunting, it's stunning to watch. But more often than not, the prey escapes unharmed as other birds raise the alarm with startled cries or by suddenly flying away. Arguably, domestic cats have a far more significant impact on wild bird populations particularly songbirds, than all raptors, including the sparrowhawk. The RSPB quotes recent figures from the Mammal Society, which estimate cats in the UK catch up to 100 million prey items every spring and summer, of which 27 million are birds. Ickworth Audio Described Tour. We are pleased to be able to give our listeners early notice of a new development at Ickworth House, the National Trust property near Bury St Edmunds. From the beginning of August, it's planned to introduce an audio-described tour especially relevant to blind or partially sighted visitors. The tour will provide descriptions of this unique building as approached by the main drive and of the ground floor interior, highlighting some of the significant art treasures. Headsets will be available from the welcoming point near to the car park, free of charge. This is the first time such a facility has been made available anywhere by the National Trust, making Ickworth an even more 
special place to visit. An independent cinema is set to allow dog owners to bring their four-legged friends along with them to watch the latest blockbuster. The Abbeygate Cinema in Hatter Street, Bury St Edmunds, is inviting owners to bring well-behaved dogs with them. A blanket, water, free treats and even a dog-friendly ice cream will be on offer. During the films, the lights will be kept on half, with the sound turned down to allow the pooches to enjoy their experience. Management at the Abbeygate Cinema are hoping this offering, which will be held on select Monday mornings, will prove to be a hit. Gareth Boggis, general manager, said... Bury St Edmunds is such a dog-friendly town, this seemed like a no-brainer for us. It's truly inclusive. Elvis will show at the inaugural screening on Monday, July the 4th, with bookings available on the cinema's website. Benny's chill back bigger than ever. Welly wanging with pirates, sack races and live music welcomed back the return of Benny's chill in Thurston, raising about £1,300 in the process. The event, celebrating the life of village teenager Ben Ragg, who died after an accident involving an air gun in May 2016, came back bigger than ever on Saturday. Started by Ben's mother Claire in 2017, the event this year was held at Thurston Rugby Club. Claire said, It was just a lovely and beautiful day. Everybody was just great, and it could not have been any better. All the people who came were just amazing, and made it an absolutely perfect day. Food vendors, stalls, face painting, and a children's area were also on the site, with bands from the Queen's Road Studios in Bury St Edmunds, and the largest line-up of DJs that Benny's Chill has seen. All the proceeds from the event go to the Ben Rag Skate Park Fund, which is trying to build a skate park in Thurston, as Ben was a keen skateboarder and a BMX rider. Claire said, To everybody that came and supported the event, in whatever way they did, I just want to send all my love to them and let them know I appreciate their love and support that we have received since we started Benny's Chill. New owners of Sandwich Shop promise food full of passion. A West Suffolk village is set to get a new destination to enjoy a sandwich, toasty and burger after butchers announce the takeover of a popular sandwich shop. Alistair Angus and Curtis Lowe are taking over the Oak Crumb Sandwich Bar in Barton Road, Thurston and are going to rebrand and launch a new business called Stacked. It's hoped that the new business will open in August or September, but until the takeover, the sandwich bar will be operating as normal. Mr Angus, who owns Thurston Butchers, and Mr Lowe decided to take on the new business after a successful pop-up burger shop, which the team ran during the coronavirus pandemic. Mr Angus said, In lockdown, we diversified our butcher's business. We lost out on some catering contracts due to the pandemic, so we established a pop-up burger shop in our cookhouse, our on-site kitchen. After lockdown, we decided to hang up our burger griddles until we came up with a more long-term solution, as we were quickly outgrowing our space. After discussing market stalls, burger vans and so on, we settled on wanting to create our dream in a bricks-and-mortar site. Brilliant beginning to bike hire at National Trust Parkland. A cycle hire offer at the National Trust's Ickworth site 
has gone off to a flying start. More than 160 bikes were hired out in the first week, with 55 people back in the saddle, taking on the Parkland's 9-kilometre multi-use trail. Amy Monk, a visitor operations and experience manager at Ickworth, said, It has been great seeing visitors exploring the wider estate, getting closer to nature and enjoying the peace and tranquility of our parkland that has it to offer. Bikes ranging from balanced bikes to adult bikes can be hired between Thursday and Sunday from 10am for as little as £3 for two hours. For more details, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk backslash Ixworth. Relay for Life returns to Noton Park. A major Cancer Research UK fundraising event in Bury St Edmunds returns next weekend after a pandemic-related break. Relay for Life will be held at Noton Park on July the 2nd and 3rd with teams fundraising throughout the year before joining together as a community to honour those affected by cancer and celebrate the progress made in research. The Berry event is the only Relay for Life in Suffolk, with 14 teams taking part this year. The event starts with cancer survivors following a lone piper for the opening lap at noon on July the 2nd, before team members continue the work walking relay. Novelty laps and live on-stage entertainment will give the event a family fun day atmosphere, with visitors welcome to take a picnic and blanket or buy food from vendors. Meanwhile, the teams taking part will have fundraising stalls. A Candle of Hope ceremony starts at 9pm, enter Noton Park by 8.45pm, and the loot bags are placed around the track through the night. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundry News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given, or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. The telephone numbers mentioned in this edition are connected with 101 Police, quoting reference 37 backslash 36578 backslash 22 for fires in Haverhill. And the reference to Songs of Praise is 07734-030-888. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Harvey, me, Adrian, Mary and Sue, it's goodbye. 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 been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.